the podcast is is on. Oh wow, cool. Um, and, and this is one where I'm just going to ship it. You know, really? Oh yeah, we're live to tape here. Ship it live. Do it live. <laughs> yeah, this is it's because this is our second holiday episode. Yeah, so the, the holidays are now over. You you got to say they're over, right? Yeah, you got to say they're over. It's 2018. Yeah. In fact, we've had more than a week of 2018, haven't we? Yeah. Everybody's flown home. Everybody who's going, everybody who traveled, they're all they're all home now. Yeah, including us. There's been a whole other conference in between the holidays and now. What do you mean? Well, they, didn't you attend a big like law professor conference? Yeah. The, well, yes. Well, the, I guess it's a matter of debate, right? It's the Association of American Law Schools. You could say, didn't you attend a law school conference? What did I say? You said law professor conference. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but it's, but I assume it was attended by law, pretended by, attended by uh, law professors and not law schools. Yeah, well, law professors attended, and, and I suppose, in a sense, they were uh, representatives of their law schools uh, uh, in some matters and not others. Uh, well, I'm glad to see that in the new year, our podcast continues apace. Yes, because <laughs> I'm is, about to talk about this bodily pain and a doctor's visit I have coming up tomorrow. <laughs> is that, oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay. Well, we better get going with some real, real topics before. So we, are, so our holiday. This is the holiday episode. The second part two, one. Yeah. Because we are up. We we are we are in world headquarters, but we are in a different wing. Yes. A different wing. I, I a different even floor. Talk. I'm not even going to edit that out. We're on a different floor in front of the fireplace, which is very nice. Uh, Darcy the dog is curled up in front of the fire. Indeed, she is, as is her wont. She often joins us down when we are recording, um, but doesn't get to enjoy the fireplace because we don't have a fireplace down in the studio yet. No, I want to. I want to rush to add yet <laughs> because we might need to add a fireplace to the studio. We got people coming in and out. Apparently, I don't know who that was, but there is a guinea pig squealing, squealing in the background. It's not. It's not. You know. Just us doing sound effects of guinea pigs. That is an actual guinea pig. I don't think I would do those sound effects. I'm just telling everyone so they know it's an actual guinea pig. So do you think this is going to be a big year for the show? What does that even mean? I don't know. I'm just asking you, right? Well, then I can't answer. Do you think it's going to be a big year? I I don't know. Have you woken up in the morning and thought to yourself, like any day this year so far, there have been, what, six or seven mornings so far this year? I think so. And thought, Oh my God, this is going to be 2018. That's going to be a big year for the show. Have you, has that happened to you? No. Okay, me neither. But maybe. For maybe. some value yeah. of the phrase a big year, yes. Maybe, maybe we should start the show. Okay. Um, what, what, huh. You said oh, you had notes. You said you had a bunch I do. of notes. I, ha- I, have, I have some things here. So I've got, we're going to try to finish up some of the things in the mailbag. There are some of the things I wasn't quite sure about. We may not get to, but I, I pulled some more things out of the mailbag. Okay, good. For us to talk about. Um, was your trip good, though, the, to the conference? I had a great trip. It was a great conference. It was nice to hand over the reins to the next uh, chair of the executive committee of the IP section of the AALS. Uh, I did that. Because my, you, were the, you were the, what, the king, the emperor of I was the section? outgoing uh, chair, and uh, my, I was the chair, and, uh, and now I was, I'm now the immediate past chair, and so I'm no longer on the executive committee after three years of, of service, and uh, it was nice to hand it over. This is of the section. It's in great hands. Of the section of the American Association of Law Schools devoted to intellectual property law. Yes. Okay. Otherwise known as the IP section. And you were the king of this section until this I year. I was the chair of the executive yeah. committee of the section. And you voluntarily relinquished power. You abdicated. And now there's a new head, a new king, a new regent of the IP section. Is that right? Uh, somewhat. <laughs> 
This seems to be irritating you more than normal. I think you're, you've got a time zone thing. You, you only were gone for a couple of days. It's, I'm not irritated more than normal. I really, don't, <laughs> I really don't like this king thing that you're doing at all. This is the second week in a row. I, I mean, we were off one week, but where you haven't liked the, the shtick that I come out with. You didn't like the whole feud thing last time. By the way, well, that we, was very misguided. By the way, we failed to start a feud as far as that I can was tell. Ver- that was deeply wrong and misguided. <laughs> I did not like that. There's still, I still hold it. Maybe this is the year of our feud. You and I are about to, yeah, because I'm about to throw down. This is, uh, um, yeah, uh, move um, along. Okay, okay. But it was, um, uh, so, so do you find these things helpful? I mean, are the, the, obviously you were the, what the, the chair of, of this section on the IP. And oh, one yeah, of the I major think... events is, you, I assume you have an email list, but also you, you do events at the annual conference where people present papers, that sort of thing. Any, yes. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, um, what's interesting, I had a, a conversation with one of the new members of the, of the IP section's executive committee about this. Uh, you know, I think the role of the section and the executive committee thereof uh, really varies pretty widely depending on the particular sort of area of law that you're talking about. So um, the IP community, the IP law professor community, has uh, for some years now had a regular uh, conference uh, in August called the IP Scholars Conference. Mm-hmm. And that's been going on for some years now, and it's very popular, very successful, moves around a list of schools, uh, moves around the country, uh, very well attended. Uh, and um, so in a way, that has become the annual academic conference for the presentation of uh, papers that people are working on. Mm-hmm. But there's, there are other conferences besides, right? So there's um, Works in Progress IP, also known as WIPIP, uh, that is every year. Uh, there is... Uh, there, there are uh, more domain-specific uh, conferences every year. PatCon is the one for patent folk. So, so there are lots of academic conferences for people in IP and, uh, and allied areas. I think there are some law professor things, though, for which there isn't a regular academic conference of right. that type. Right. So, so the AALS annual meeting really plays a, even that much more important a role. I think for the IP community, it's it's a good sort of... It's got some social components where there we do have an academic panel, uh, but it can be a little bit more flexible, a little bit uh, more open to different possibilities, different ideas that people are exploring. Um, So, so yeah, I think it's very good. Well, I'm glad you're back, and that was. uh... I mean, we, there is a an annual property conference I go to, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Sarah Schindler, one of our she, and um, uh, a bunch of uh, ran into Sarah at AALS as did well. Did you really? So yeah, she's doing great. Yeah, I mean, it's that is the one great thing about these the the kind of multidisciplinary conferences is that you get to see so many professors that you maybe rarely get to see, and hopefully, it's an occasion where people can share ideas and and yeah. engage in interdisciplinary work or start a project or I don't know. Yeah, but you enjoyed it. And Absolutely, you're back. had a great time. Okay. San Diego, beautiful, wonderful. Uh, speaking of IP, we got we. I don't. I don't recall if we mentioned this email that we got last time, Joe, uh, from listener Corey about that case. I know. I know you and I talked about it, but I don't know if we did it on air. I just wanted to acknowledge that we got this email uh, about this case, Oil States Energy Services, about takings and patent law. Do you remember this? We did talk about that case. And I don't, did we talk about it on the air? I think we did. Um, okay. The the. Um, 
I think we did too. Now that now that I'm but it is it. not there is not a takings theory at work in that case. There was some discussion, I think, at oral argument about whether uh, ha- how we might analyze a, a takings issue if there were a change in patent law that were applied retroactively, and that was a way to sort of talk about the retroactivity issue that may be lurking in some facet of, the, of that case. The, the real thrust of that case is about the, uh, whether or not the, uh, some of the new procedures for challenging issued patents, uh, whether those new procedures comport with Article Three with the notion that some things have to be put before a federal judge rather than an administrative agency. That's the core of that case. But it can reach out into some other interesting stuff, I guess. Okay. I, you know, I don't know if we're going to have a whole show on that, but that may come up again. I think we mentioned that last time, that this, this issue may come up again. And, well, it would yeah. be, you know, I think it would be good to have a, a whole episode about it if the court actually strikes down this, this part of, the patent reforms uh, passed in t- in 2011. If the court holds that it violates Article Three, I think that will the court will have to say some things that would be very much worth talking about at some length because it, I think it would be a, a something of a turn. Yeah. Uh, so, but if they conclude that mm, it's actually fine, <laughs> there's there's no Article Three, there's no fundamental Article Three problem. I be, I think that would be a little bit more of a dog bites man story. Did we mention last time that uh, this is shifting gears to Steve Vladek's upcoming argument in the Dalmazi case? About we, which we, we had didn't an episode. mention it last time. It's coming right up. I think it's on like on January sixteenth or something like that. It's uh, close to that. Let's see. Do I have the date in front of me? I think it's yeah, Tuesday, January sixteenth. Yeah. So and, a week from this coming Tuesday. Yeah, and um, so so this came up partly because as we're now recording on Sunday, the whatever we had asked a while back whether any of our we we had, had guests who had advocated in front of the Supreme Court. Um, I think we mentioned, I think we already mentioned, listener Asher pointed out that Orrin Kerr yeah. has our, I think we mentioned that on the show. Yeah. Um, but, but it caused me to think back again to, um, and listener, listener Asher sent in a number of other bits of feedback. Not all of them we'll talk about on the air, but, um, but just for our own edification, that mm-hmm. was his intention, which were great. So thank Always you. Always good to hear from thank listener you, Asher. Thank you, thank you very much for that. Uh, but this, this argument coming Always up. Always learn from listener something, Asher. Something, oh, obviously, yeah. And, and so something interesting has happened in this Delmazi argument. They've given 10 minutes of oral argument to um, Professor, um, I think it's, uh, is it Bamzai from University of Virginia? It's B-A-M-Z-A-I. I've never met him, so I don't know. Nor but, have I. But he has put in a brief saying that, that there is no jurisdiction for the Supreme Court to hear an appeal from, well, this is the question, is, is it an appeal, to hear, uh, 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 to review the decision of the uh, of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which is an Article One court, mm. based on Marbury against Madison, mm. because the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is only appellate in this area. There's no claim of original jurisdiction, and this is not appellate jurisdiction because it's not a, an appeal from. It's not a true appeal from a uh, a final judicial decision. And I won't go. I, I read chunks of the brief, and it's very interesting. And I don't know what Steve is gonna is gonna say about it. Um, right. Obviously, you and I talked about Marbury against Madison not too long ago for a podcast for my undergraduate class. True. And uh, I just think it's fascinating that this is coming up again, and I'm interested to hear, to hear how it goes. Do you have any initial thoughts? 
Uh, I, I don't. Uh, and he's arguing on his own behalf, by the way. It's an amicus, like he's an, wrote an amicus brief. Right. They gave him 10 minutes of argument to argue for himself, basically. Much as, much as Oren Kerr did in the uh, cell phone tower uh, records, uh, phone records case, he wrote an amicus brief for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not get argument time. I don't know that he even requested it. Who knows? Right. Uh, um, this is the Carpenter uh, But if he did case, request right? it, he was not granted it. Excuse the me? The Carpenter case, right? The Carpenter case. Yeah. That's the name of the case. My apologies. Uh I, I don't have uh, detailed thoughts because I, I haven't read that brief and uh, and haven't thought through the issue. It is funny that you mention it right after my having uh, said of oil states that it's about this question about Article 3. Right. And does this new, uh, new, some of the new procedures for challenging patents after they've been issued by the PTO, whether those procedures comport with Article 3. So the, and Marbury itself, I mean, the court is... Um, uh, per- perhaps more than any other institution, <laughs> uh, very concerned about the scope of its own power and the scope of its own jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So it's natural that it would be drawn to disputes that have these facets to them, especially uh, w- w- when people point them out. Uh, and-, and even when people don't point them out, uh, the court is always interested to hear, as any federal court is, this is our tradition, right? Any federal court is interested in hearing about if there's a jurisdictional problem in the case. Because if there is, at any time that that comes to light, it's something a court really needs to think about. Of course, this is what's so crazy about Marbury, this very famous case, which which most people who know it from a high school civics class or a college class would know for establishing judicial review, the power of the court right. to say what the law is by striking down statutes by basically refusing to apply legislation uh, that violates the Constitution. And, of course, it does that. I mean, it did that for federal law. There's a later case that does it for state law as well. Uh, But it does it by striking down a statute which purported to give it the court power. So it was a a very deft use of, of, of a case in a way to kind of claim a power by claiming a power to refuse to recognize its own power, right? Right. Statue. So it was um, so polit- it looks, politically it, it is in, It is in some way an act of modesty. Uh, right. It is in another way an act of power and, Im- and not immodesty, but an, right. but an act of, of, of um, self-empowerment. Right. Um, so so I, I, anyway, I think, I think the shape of this argument, again, this is just gleaned quickly from kind of scanning the brief, uh, the amicus brief in this case, is that... Uh, if there's a decision by an executive official resolving something, and I think the president passes on the thing last, I, I forget exactly how it works, but there's some final call by the president potentially for these uh, uh, for, for a court martial that goes through the court of uh, armed for- court of appeals for the armed forces, and um, that this would be no different than if Congress passed a statute giving a, a, a decision to any other executive official. So the fact that it is named a court and it kind of works like a court doesn't change the fact that it's an executive official making a decision. And even if that looks like a court, it's not a judicial decision from which an appeal would be taken to the Supreme Court. Rather, you would be asking the court to direct an executive official to do something different. And so would this, uh, would it be consistent with this and therefore, it's not. And, and Marbury stands for the idea, in addition to establishing judicial review, right, uh, that the Supreme Court, unless something falls within its original jurisdiction, within the uh, with, within the uh, meaning of the Constitution, like within the categories of original jurisdiction mentioned in the Constitution, it can only hear appeals. Right, its jurisdiction is only appellate, and only appellate as to those matters that Congress kind of gives it jurisdiction over. So, yeah. is it consistent with this person's view that? If if Congress uh, assume the court would uh, Supreme Court were to agree 
uh, with this person, um, and and Congress were to view that uh, as a defect in, in the design of this regime. Right? Could Congress fix that defect by sending something from the uh, Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces to a, a something like a U.S. District Court? I think obviously, or a U.S. Yeah. Court of Appeals, and then from there. Uh, assuming Congress wanted the end of the road to, in fact, to be the Supreme Court of the United States, right. could, from there, let's say it goes to the D.C. Circuit, then from there to the uh, Supreme Court, uh, then the Supreme Court would be acting in an appellate manner. Yeah, I, right? think, I think the one and thing so the that, defect would be right. fixed. The one thing that Congress cannot do is provide a route directly from this court to the United States Supreme Court under it, this view. But it could provide a route to a view by some other inferior court, right? And, and so, they, so we, we yeah. would find out, I suppose, if, if the Supreme Court reached that view uh, and, and it were brought before Congress and Congress decided to act, we'd find out, is what Congress cared about that there be an additional step of review, or is what Congress cared most about that it be by the Supreme Court? Right. Because if it merely just wants another step of review, you could send it to, the, you know, again, a U.S. District Court, you could, you could send it to a Court of Appeals, you wouldn't need it to go to the Supreme Court necessarily, right? Well, well that's kind of interesting. I mean, so I hadn't thought about this. I, I hadn't really, I've never thought about this. This is something for a federal courts person, and I have no expertise on, although I know some federal court stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not a federal court scholar. Nor am I. Uh, so could, is it even possible for Congress to give jurisdiction for a district court to hear a matter, but but provide by statute that the Supreme Court cannot review the decision of that district well, court? Well, this raises think, the exceptions clause yeah. matter, right? Because it, once, once, it's in, once it's in a lower federal court, then the, 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 there is some, there's the question of whether there should be an appeal, right? Yeah. Um, because now you do have a matter that is in an Article Three court. Right. Uh, and there's a, there is another portion in Article Three that talks about Congress establishing the lower federal courts um, and, and refers to exceptions uh, from the appellate power the Supreme Court would otherwise have. So, um, mm-hmm. so it's I think it goes under the heading of the, the exceptions clause. This notion yeah, of I can't can you can you yeah. um, some people call it jurisdiction stripping, which is sort of a way to refer to the fact that by default we would naturally think of appellate matters going to the Supreme Court. Yeah, but I thought jurisdiction stripping referred to the removal of what otherwise would be a case in controversy from the U.S. courts altogether. So No, I, it's, it doesn't refer. It might refer to that in addition, but certainly not only to that. The, um, uh, it could be appeals I, I, okay, well, rather I, than just initial matters. I will wonder and opine no further here because I'm at the limits of my expertise because I, I do not. Um, I can't think of any good examples where a district court can hear something and that finally resolves the matter. And the Supreme Court is. I can't either. It would be quite unusual. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't think of an example which makes me. And, and I also you know, so, think, like for example. Well, here's an example I just thought of. So there are some removal decisions that are unappealable, right? So the decision to send a case back to state court that had been removed from state right, court right. under diversity jurisdiction or some other thing, for example. Um, I think there's there are removal processes that are that can't be appealed. Um, so that, that's an instance of a district court resolving something in a way that's sort of, that's the end of the line as so far as federal court's concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, maybe if the, if the question of where the thing should have been stays alive in the state court determination, I suppose an appeal might lie from a state Supreme Court to the Supreme Court of the United States on that federal question, Right. Uh, if if there is still a federal issue in the case, should this have been in federal court? 
Yeah, I have uh, many thoughts and guesses, but I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna go further because I think yeah, it, it, if it, only it, Steve Waddick were here. Be, I know it could be because totally he wrong. is a federal courts uh, scholar, yeah, or and, Matt Hall, or somebody. If if anybody were here who could talk to us about this, then then yeah. I would feel totally comfortable spinning out a yarn and and bouncing it off. But I'm not. Okay. I'm not going to do that. So, uh, um, but one other matter here is, of course, habeas is available. And so to the extent that the executive through one of these courts is kind of holding you or applying some kind of custody, uh, uh, then you can, you can petition for habeas. And that's a way to get into the federal courts and ultimately up to the United States Supreme Court. So that, that already exists, but of course, by statute, they could provide some other mechanism. Now, this is all assuming that this theory is valid at all. And the government's brief does spend some number of pages mm-hmm. arguing that, that, um, that this professor is wrong and that this is an appeal within the meaning of Article 3 of the Constitution, and therefore the Supreme Court can hear the appeal. So, so there you go. Other thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just one, that it reminds me of, in our conversation with Steve, uh, about th- this general area, which I think occurred before it, it was known that the court was going to hear the Dalmazi case. Mm-hmm. I think when Steve, you, you and I talked about it. Yeah, yeah. That had not yet happened. The court had not yet granted. They were sitting. I think they they were sitting on the petitions Um, for cert. You know, one of the things he mentioned there is that that this this these issues about military courts and reviewing the actions of military courts is something that the Supreme Court has not done very much of lately, and certainly in the context of these contemporary arrangements, things like the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces and the like, and and so. You know the maybe one reason why uh, an issue as as interesting and in some ways as fundamental as it, it does Marbury tell us we shouldn't be here, right? Yeah. Which is, I mean, Marbury's an eighteen oh three case. You would mm-hmm. think hmm, we would have figured that out. We've had a mili- had militaries for a long time. We've had We've military had courts, courts for, a long, for time. a long time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. so like, gosh, how could it be we haven't gotten to this? Well, the Supreme Court hasn't heard very many of these sorts of cases, uh, at least in in in, uh, in our lifetime of professional practice so uh so it's interesting there's there's uh, lots of uh, lots of ground to till all right a few other things and we'll get back to this issue of expertise at the end i think uh, uh what last, issue of expertise yeah uh, the issue of like what, yeah let, let's, let's let's put a pin in that one joe okay come back to it you said this issue of expertise as if we had been talking about an issue of expertise and well we didn't realize we had been so well I, I was i was saying i'm not going to say any more because i don't have expertise and, ah okay uh, so let, let me um Although I know that's shocking to you that that would stop me, <laughs> but but in this instance it has because uh, yeah I just don't want to spin out a whole. I got a bunch of thoughts, but like what what is the use of if there may be an easy answer to this, there could be good examples I don't have access to, and usually right. reasoning in law occurs if you have a, a at least and a number of good examples be, in mind. Not only not only do we not have a great interlocutor here uh, to, to to talk about the issue, but it could even be fun to sort of well let's see what the Supreme Court says in Dalmazi. Yeah, and and if they if the if in the court's opinion it talks about this issue and the arguments raised by this party, uh, excuse me, this amicus and mm-hmm. uh, and the and the, the you know the the way things shake out in the case, let that that would inform our discussion about it, right? Because we'll have new information, so that'd be fun too. So a couple things before we get back to that. So Joel's podcast, listener Joel, you remember has a podcast uh, yeah, our, in our Australia, friend in Australia. Yeah. Uh, the in this case podcast. Yep. 
And I think we can say Joel Townsend because he mentions himself in the in the show. Okay. Um, I got a chance to listen. To, have you gotten a chance to I listen? I have not. To, okay. So, so I know you've been traveling and other things. Yes. But I, so I got, I've, I've listened to a few of these and they're really interesting. They are, um, especially if you live in Australia and you know Australian law. But even if you don't, like just kind of listening in and seeing how Australians think about some of the same issues that we have. No, how did you subscribe to this? Or can you it's subscribe? It's in iTunes. Oh, it is in iTunes. Yeah, you just okay. search for In That Case in iTunes. And I'll just say up front, and he mentioned this at the, at the beginning of the last episode. That mentioned he's, what? That he's trying to improve the audio of the shows. Okay. So um, so the, the audio is kind of hit and miss. And, and in the last one in particular, there's a portion where like he's in one speaker but not the other. So, so two, two bits of advice for listener Joel, I think. Uh, one is mono. Mm-hmm record everything in mono okay um boy i think i had a second one what was it um boy i'm forgetful these well days, you're Joe. thinking about what it might be let yeah. me see this is an opportunity for me to say to to all the oral, oral argument oh i know what it is uh, fans and um and even non-fans who are listening for some reason um you spend a lot of time you christian turner spend a lot of time uh for some value of the phrase a lot on making this sound however good it sounds except for this episode um, i put no effort into <laughs> except that except for this episode let's just let's just clarify because we're I up ju- here and you just well, understand you know but i'm just for, gonna ship but it. but um over the whole range of our four years of doing this for now four years plus 100 and however many episodes so far 185 um it it yeah. has uh i think in the main it sounds great and I think you are entirely the reason for that. I, it's certainly not me. I don't know anything about that stuff. I don't, therefore, can't do anything about that stuff. You do it. It's awesome. So thank you for well, that. That's a, that's a rare moment of, of compliments between the two of us. Because, <laughs> because I think that you sound great, Joe. And it's because of your, the, you know, your, your, the sweet baritone voice of generosity that you bring to the show. Well, I think it, I think it is both the the tenor of your voice and also the the, the things that you say. I was referring to the technological delivery, the I recording of it, the processing of that recording, um, and and that's all about you and the um, amazing stuff you do with the I'm technology. I'm just I'm just uncomfortable with the unvarnished compliment, and I'm flailing to try to kind of okay. flip it around and make this about self congratulation of the two of us rather than just a compliment. And and in, and much like the uh, the sort of errant thread that. <laughs> Uh, expert uh, tapestry makers throughout history I have placed into up. their tapestries to to add that that imperfection and um, in, make that interesting thing. Um, you have marred the compliment I paid you <laughs> by by the little bit of japing and jackassery that you just in, uh, inserted into it. So that's good. I know. I, I well, I I, I tried. To, uh, it was an errant compliment of you. I guess mm. it's a true compliment, but. I'll admit it wasn't, you know, it's not exactly like I'm saying. And also, you're great at technologically improving the audio quality of the show. <laughs> so what was the uh, second bit of advice uh, you had for although, Joel? You know, we, we so, well, I mean, we have assembled the show generally, at least in world headquarters, from pretty low-level consumer equipment hooked up to an ordinary computer. And then through software and other things and you know, have tried to make it sound as good as we can on that ordinary. I equipment. think these are these are not microphones that you would find in everyone's home. I think the no, we had to and, and we've got pop filters. We've got these shields for on the other side of the microphone to eliminate some of the echoing pickup. Right. Uh, so I I don't think but these it's all are things cheap. that would be done by 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 routine. F- 
by most folks is a matter of routine. Right. They're just, it's cheap, though. It's, it's, it's cheap. Well, relative to, I mean, this, my sense is this is the sort of equipment you could spend as much money as you wanted to on yeah. this stuff. So that would be the, the other thing I was going to mention for listener Joel was a pop filter mm. that I think would help. So for what it's worth, I think pop yes. filter and, 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 and exporting the show in mono pop rather than stereo. Um, but, the, but the conversations that he has are really great. So he spends the first uh, five or ten minutes, usually about ten minutes, summarizing an issue. Usually it's, a cor- it's a, either a particular litigation. There was one involving um, uh, gay rights in Tasmania. And, and bringing Tasmania into line with the rest of Australia. And, cool. some, and so he, he described the course of that litigation. And then, he, and then he talks via phone or otherwise with the people who litigated these cases in Australia or otherwise had some involvement in them. Oh. And so he's done several of these now. I think it's only going to get better as time goes by. But these interviews are great. He's, he picks good issues. Um, and, it, of course, he's, um, uh, you know, pro- probably the worst thing you can say about Joel is that he's a longtime listener to our show. <laughs> <laughs> but, but clearly, like, you know, super intelligent. And, and um, anyway, I would... Well, that's so great. I would recommend it. And um, I think it's going to be... Uh, I think it's going to be a super popular show in Australia and around the world. You so know, there the, you go. Um, well, you know, the, well, it's just so fascinating. And there's so much that one can explore and talk about. And, um, and so there, the, there's so many more great law podcasts uh, to be done. Uh, and I'm so glad that he's part of that too now. So that's great. Yeah. And I got another one from Listener Amble. I don't think we mentioned Listener Amble's email on the last show, did we? I don't think we did, no. So he, he But said, I remember we got one. Yeah. And I remember reading it and thinking it was an interesting question, although I do not remember what the well, question was. Well, let me was. just let me just fill it in really quickly and I'll I'll include a link, hopefully. I think I will try to include show notes to some extent. Although this is gonna be a quick one. I'm gonna turn it around like right when we're done. Um, like that. Uh ba boom. But he shared um, what he thought was a wonderfully presented, interesting piece from Huffington Post on um, the, the piece. De- I'll just read what he says. The piece describes ways millennials, in particular those who do not have a college degree or well-off families, face unique and growing barriers to financial thriving, including mm. a lack of affordable housing in economically vibrant areas. And he yes. gives the link. And it is a, like it's one of those stories where thought was not only given to the contents, but also to the design, because you kind of scroll down and it illustrates things in a, oh, in a cool. reactive way. It's, mm-hmm. it's a well-presented article as well as a, a well-argued one. And he asked whether we buy the argument presented here, and he says, by such writers as Matt Iglesias. He had me at Matt Iglesias. The answer is probably yes. Probably do, I probably do agree with Matt Iglesias. <laughs> um, that more permissive city zoning and building rules allowing higher buildings and easing parking requirements, for example, would help alleviate economic inequality, would federal legisla- legislation restricting local rules pass constitutional muster, or are, there, or are these changes that uh, states and cities must enact themselves? How is your... Reaction informed by changes to Athens, which has experienced recent buildup around downtown, mostly of, extent of expensive student rental housing. And he mentions how this is related to what we talked about with Dave Fagundis. At least some of these issues might be in our last episode with him. So it, it is, it's one of these articles about how the millennials are basically being beaten up on economically. They took a beating in the, um, uh, from the um, financial crisis, uh, were set back in the workforce in ways that people who come into the workforce at the time of an economic recession yeah. are beaten up and never yeah. quite recover. Yep. Um, and there's also an element here of that we've talked about, I don't know how much on the show, about how basically the boomers got all the free stuff and then pulled up the ladders, right? Like right. free college, subsidized uh, housing, cheap housing market, kind of post-war boom, and then gradually have pulled back on all that stuff. So 
Right. Uh, I, the answer is I do. And, and the salt they throw in that wound is the is complaining about all the youngs and all the frees they want and all the la 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 la. And in the meanwhile, they're gorging themselves on every bit of stuff they can shift upward <laughs> into their own, you know, gaping maws. Right. I mean, Not that, that would, I have a view that would be that. a more attractive rhetorical position instead of free college, <laughs> baby boomer priced college. Oh, yeah, there you go. Although I do think free college is the answer, but free is a weird well, word. Well, I think it's a it? shift in the nature of the sort of the level of educational attainment that you want the citizenry in general to have. And I think the educational attainment is no longer, you know, uh, 12 years after your kindergarten year, it's, you know, it's 16 years after your kindergarten year. I just think it's part of basic educational attainment. And it this, takes more years. And if you, and, and so in just the same way that um, we try to provide public education at no to minimal expense for the person who's using it, mm-hmm. um, it seems to me we would do that for the thing that comes after high school as well at this, at this point. I think this is getting at one of those... Of, of one of the ways that our politics has failed us these days, um, that hold on, what was Amble's question? Well, his 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 question was, do we agree that easing up on zoning can help with this, and how do you how do you square that with uh, what's happened in Athens, with the you know, in particular with the buildup of all the student housing downtown, which I think is actually great. Um, and 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 the and the, the small answer to that is yes. I mean, I think. Um, uh, Zoning for denser, yeah, and and uh, plate is good. Um, at the same time, I am an environmentalist, and I believe yeah. in the preservation of wilderness and natural areas, which well, I also but, think are critical for the human spirit. Y- but yes. you can do that w- without without constraining the amount of housing stock. Yes, uh, and and there are multiple uh, uh, there there are multiple things you can knit together. For example, that that the the sort of encouraging density. Can can be uh, partnered with uh, an urban growth boundary, a la Portland, Oregon, and so you can have m- sort of moving pieces here of, ver- of various looking at the usage of land in various locations and how it, it interacts. Right. Yeah. No. No. I, so, I, yeah, for just I, that I, reason, right there, so you can you can bought both of the things you just referred to. Right. And so you can say, ah, oh, okay. Well, why don't I try to get both of those things instead of just saying I can only get one, I can't get the other. Well, maybe maybe you can get some of both. And there are trade offs. I mean, there's going to be historic preservation, environmental, and housing and affordable housing. There are going to be certain trade offs. There's sometimes you're not going to be able to get kind of all three, but usually you can get two right. of the three. No, I don't think there's political... He also referenced uh, doing this at the federal level, right? Having certain federal standards mm-hmm. that might remove contrary local standards. And I, I just don't... I don't think there's any constitutional impediment to that. I just think there's a political will impediment. I don't, wouldn't see any... I, I don't know. A federal law that... It, it depends on the way in which it, it funneled and channeled local zoning laws. I mean, a federal zoning code could run into that... You know, into that doctrine about yeah, not if it, well if you if you're if you're not able to cobble together the the interstate commerce hook for that you're you're just not trying very hard. <laughs> I mean, it, you, yeah. now we, you, there's the broccoli. You'd have to have the broccoli caveat, right? It couldn't it couldn't purport to order someone to 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 buy something, for example. So we've learned in the Sibelius case that's not that's those, not cricket. Those but, were the days. Remember when we thought that that was when 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 the worry was that that was what authoritarianism was all about, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, uh, but uh, pres- pre- assuming 
assuming one can steer clear of that uh, sandbar, uh, I, I wouldn't see any interstate commerce problem getting to a, a national zoning statute. I mean, I can see federalism policy concerns. I, my, my issues with... Well, sure, sure, yeah. but that's about the political will. Right. It's not about there being a constitutional impediment. Yeah, I, I can think... You, I think we can both think of ways that, this, that you could draft legislation uh, requiring dense development and that, that would potentially run into um, constitutional problems, problems of the federal government trying to displace areas which have been committed to local um, uh, to local decision making. Uh, we can we can imagine those kinds of things, but you can, oh, as you say, you can, can also imagine, imagine legislation and, and, around and it. much and much more readily. One can imagine uh, some sort of goofball uh, constitutional argument being made by a party mm-hmm. uh, who didn't like such a thing. Um, and I can even imagine uh, goofball justices going along with it. Yeah, uh, but th- so, yeah. this is an area, though, where where it would be nice for local, you know, where I think it would be better for, for um, local, uh, uh, whether it's cities or states, to develop on their own solutions to this problem. I sure. Mean, and, and perhaps you can imagine federal grant programs. I mean, this is one area where this kind of, like, middle-of-the-road policy making does seem to me to be... A decent approach. I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head here. Here, um, I, I agree, and I and I think that um, I I like the spirit of Amble's uh, question and the pointer to the to the piece very much. Although I think it's a bit, um, you know, it's it's not the the, the lion share of the stuff is about things like um, pe- people going into too much debt for college because college is too expensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I'd rather tackle those questions directly yeah, yeah. rather than have a discussion about, well, if we change zoning law, la, 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 la. you know, let's right. just finance education. There, yeah, there are separate issues. One is cities like, for example, San Francisco should, you know, there should be 20, 40, 50 story buildings in places in San Francisco where there are now only three story buildings. I mean, this is, you know, you talk to people from San Francisco and you realize, uh, Right. The, the politics there are quite different. There are earthquake issues and other things they need oh, yeah, to reckon with. You and can solve that problem. I, I know yeah. you can solve it yeah. at some for for some level of expense, right? Because building, the, but the problem is a general one, and and yeah, you know, the, sure. there are places where this would be a solution, and and where affordable housing is running into kind of an anti density movement by people who want to preserve their own home values. I mean, it's a complicated issue. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but, um, so, but I agree with that. But I think that's the smaller bore issue, as you say, than the fact, the bigger bore issue, which is that people don't have enough money. Right. I mean, that's what it comes <laughs> down to. Right? right, so things like helping, uh, helping people uh, much more easily um, uh, pay for uh, uh, college education, helping people... Um, by having higher national minimum wage standards, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if, if the norm, and this is what I meant by the politics is the problem. Like we're so locked into this frame where the, the Republicans have an ideological perspective on, on all of this, right? And they, and their party is now at this point in time constituted toward the strict preservation and adherence to that ideological perspective. Whereas the Democrats, at least since the 80s and and certainly uh, with the rise of, of Clinton in, in the in the 90s has been about appreciating what is possible within a frame that appeals to potential Republicans, right? That and so it's all about kind of triangulation, or has been a, a lot about triangulation of okay, given that, that that for example the deficit is bad, that it's better for people to work, uh, that um, 
that personal responsibility is a is a paramount issue. Like, given all of these things, like, yeah. what can we argue using the rhetoric which which adheres to those it's those those data that, points? Though, I mean, I, I and and I think that's a. I'm saying that's the that's the that's the paradigm in which we've been caught, and I think it's wrong. I don't think it's a I, okay. That's interesting. I want to think about it. What what strikes me as uh, so I don't think <laughs> I don't think I don't currently think of it that way as much as I think of it as um, there's a set of insights that have been incorporated like markets for just as an example right markets are good mechanisms for a bunch of things right and so using them when you can as mechanisms for things can be a great part of your toolkit right and so i think of president obama as one who wasn't triangulating a la you know sort of clinton and dick morris and all that garbage because to the extent that it's just rhetoric it is garbage well um that instead he sort of had had engaged in a kind of genuine synthesis of insights from various places asking, you know, what really works because you doing the things that works actually helps the people who you're trying to help with the things that work. I absolutely agree. What I'm saying is that the, I think the triangulation first started as strategy and then became baked into the rhetoric so that you don't even realize that it's triangulation anymore, but they are just the starting points of, quote-unquote, reasonable discourse. I mean, imagine today if we did not have universal free K-12. And maybe we had K-5. And some people were saying, you know, grades 6 through 12 turn out to be super important. We should be giving access to more kids for 6-12. Yeah, we would not be able to accomplish that right now. Well, we would do some kind of... First of all, it would be... There'd be some kind of, like, block grant program. It would be means-tested... You know, yeah. you know, and, well, and it right, would be... and given the the, and, and that's not even that much of a hypothetical, right? Mm-hmm. Because the attack on the the efforts to sort of dismantle public education sideways by, you know, vouchers and all these other things that go into trying to dismantle what I believe some people are trying to do, which is dismantle public education, right? But that um, and that just shows the importance of the frame, right? If the frame is that K twelve is a basic right. Right, because kids, you know, it's just brute luck which would block kids from ob- obtaining a K twelve education if they had to count on parental spending or something else. Right? Yeah. So, so K twelve education know, all those for middle minors schoolers is, they just don't work hard <laughs> enough at the factory. Education you know? for minors is that that it's a right is is kind of baked in. And so, how do you how do you um, if you want to change that right? If you want to change that set of entitlements, you have to argue. You have to argue from the frame. Mm-hmm. Which is why, of course, they have a right to education. Right. But wouldn't it be great if their parents could opt for these, you know, different options, or if they had more control in order to grant that right better, right, in order to realize that right in a better way? Mm-hmm. And that's the frame. Whereas for college education, that's not the frame. For right, although food, as I was suggesting earlier, it really should be, um, because uh, if you think about what what are the if you approach the issue as what are the basic educational attainments that are that are important for our citizenry at, in our time. I think it, the evidence is it's more than 12 years after kindergarten. Right. And, and so you're seeing this change for healthcare, right? Where health, the, the talk about healthcare being a right yeah. is an important move in that direction. Yes. Even though... As much as it's resisted by some people, well, yes. That even is, though, I, you know, libertarians, when, when libertarians, for example, advance the argument that 
that healthcare is, uh, is, is necessarily an allocation of scarce resources. Of course, they're correct. It is an allocation of scarce resources, and right. there will be some explicit or implicit rationing that has to occur. Right. And they argue that that uh, that um, explicit like, that implicit rationing through the market is better than explicit rationing through government, or even worse, implicit rationing through government. And that's just a you know that well, it's an argument at the level of philosophy and an argument at the level of fact. So we'd have to kind of go into what that actually cashes out into. Um, that's all correct, but but the same arguments for K twelve, right? K twelve is 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 all about you know K twelve education is is all about delivering scarce resources. Yeah, and 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 the political battle over what resources to devote to this project are being fought you know every day around the country in school districts around the around the country in states you know in all fifty states and there's litigation. So it's not as though this is a finished issue. What is finished though, or what or what the consensus has been, right? is that there is this right. Now, it is imperfectly realized. You know, we've had a show about this, right, about, about uh, the right to education. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is it Weishart, right? Josh Weishart? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. I, that's your, it's amazing that you pulled that out of the air. But <laughs> no, because it was so long ago. I can barely remember my own name, much less <laughs> someone else's name. Uh, no, I, I think we follow each other on Twitter, and he's always super interesting. Um, but I'm bad with names after after a while. But um, I mean, you could. This is, and this is, of course, is you could have this discussion about any important right. So you know, the the um, uh, for, if you think about uh, criminal justice or just justice system more generally, right? Due process, right? You know how. how how do you provide a functioning court system with independent, neutral adjudicators who will adjudicate disputes? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you can't just spend unlimited sums. You you have to figure out how to get it done at the at a price people are willing to support um, as part of what you are committed to. You can imagine if we didn't have a public justice system, but had a system where if you have if you if you have an argument with someone, uh, then you have to go out and pay for a neutral adjudicator. In order to apply the law, like you can imagine, such a system, right? Sure. I mean, this is just basically this is arbitration in a way. Uh, but if that's all that existed, right? You can imagine that that maybe that would lead to some social instability, <laughs> right? And, and you can also imagine people who observing that social instability or imagining what it would be like to observe that social instability would say, you know what? Hmm. I think there's enough of a positive spillover <laughs> of. Uh, of having a dispute settled in a much more expeditious way for a much larger set of, of people mm-hmm. um, that let's invest in some public resources in this. I think that that investment pays off, right, uh, by making the, our, our lives better uh, right. with each other. Uh, so let's pay for some of that. Uh, so we do. Yeah. Well, so I just wanted to... This is, and so, but yeah. calling it a right doesn't, doesn't you know, say doesn't tell you one way or the other how much to invest in it or not. But, but it tells you the mechanism you will use for distribution, right? Um, I mean, that's what, so, so to say it's a right is to say that there is a, there's going to be a social distribution of this thing or a social guarantee of some minimum of some kind, right? And yeah, if you, if, if like me, you think the problem is that there aren't enough things which are socially guaranteed, there are very important things which are not socially guaranteed and where, private markets do not distribute these things fairly. Yeah. And number two, people don't have enough money. Yeah. And people not having enough money is actually leading not only to distributive unfairnesses, dramatic distributive unfairnesses, but also to a smaller pie, right? But a smaller pie where a few people get much bigger wedges of that pie. That's where we are. Like we're doing stupid things if, if your goal is to grow the pie. Right. right? And this was the, the sort of um, 
I think the the reason that that Occupy and its response to the financial crisis was so uh, resonant with a lot of people uh, was just a very basic idea that we were we were kind of socializing a lot of risk and privatizing a lot of benefit in a way that seemed quite upside down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I think it you you're, even on efficiency style logic. Yeah, that yeah. that you're you're. It seems to me you're describing a, a similar kind of dynamic. Uh, I don't. So let, let me let me. We should come back to this because I after I have a more fully formed thought on it, maybe maybe I'll be not quite as tongue tied on it. Okay. Also, you know, it's been a couple weeks. We got to do this every week. Yeah. Otherwise, it gets. Blah, 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 you know what I mean. You do. Yeah. I. You can tell. Yeah. You can tell I'm off my game. Absolutely. Oh, great. Thanks, Joe. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, uh, we got um, before the last topic. We've it's got getting dark in here. We got listener Spencer, who wrote uh, to us about the about uh, at some point we were talking about it, the na- uh, the national popular vote for the president of the United States. Yeah. You know, famously twice in this century, the president of the United States who has been elected and and occupied that office has lost the popular vote. And so naturally there are many calls. And by this century you mean at, you know after the year 2000. Yes. And so you're referring to uh, uh George uh, Bush uh, George, George Bush, Bush the younger as to, yeah. uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. Uh and uh, and the current uh person. Yeah, the current guy, the guy there now. And so they both lost the popular vote and and the current occupant lost by quite a bit. Indeed. Um, and so, you know, naturally there have been calls that, you know, to uh, select the president of the United States through popular vote. And listener Spencer's point was that the, um, let's see, how to, I'm trying to Did uh, we talk this. about this? I, I don't think we did. Okay. Did we? I don't know. We're going to talk about it. Maybe, see, what I would love is if we are so demented at this point. That we talk about it we'll again. We'll talk about it again, but, but we'll say different things. Yeah, well, it's really important. If we are talking about it again, <laughs> it's really important that we say different things. And to the, and to the extent possible, contradictory things. Well, so his, his, the, the main point here was the constituency in the House of Representatives. He says in the legislature, but this is not true of the Senate, but in the House of Representatives, the constituency uh, of the House, right, is based on apportionments within the states, right? State, state, uh, uh, um, state legislative districting. Yes. Right. And the electors for the, for the president currently mirror that same thing, right? The states get a, a number of electors equal to, right. That yes. basically equal to the number of representatives. Yeah, the number of them mirror one right. another. Right. That they don't mirror each other. They're not mirrored in any other respect. Right. So Wyoming, but the point is that Wyoming say in the president of the United States mirrors Wyoming's regis, uh, representation in the house of representatives. Yeah. And, and so the, the, I think the point kind of was that if the president is supposed to execute and carry out the laws, then maybe he or she should have the same constituency as the makers of the laws. Now, I think this, the fact that the Senate doesn't have the same constituency messes this up. You know? Right. Um, and the Electoral College includes not only uh, the, 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 the number of electors it corresponds not just to the number of House members, but the number of House members plus the number of senators. Yeah. But but it's not. But but it's roughly in the same proportion as the House membership. I mean, very roughly. But right, it's that well, same. Well, only because there are lots of states with lots of representatives exactly. outnumbering their number of senators. Right. But that's um, that's a byproduct of the population and where it lives. It's not. That's not a numerical formula from the Constitution itself. 
No, right? no, if people it's lived not. in different places. That wouldn't be that way. No, but if in rough measure, the uh, the 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 support on which the president is elected mirrors the support on which the House maintains a majority, right? Then you have roughly the same constituency for the making of laws as you do for the carrying out of laws. Now, again, it's rough. It's very rough. I don't actually think this is important. Uh, you know, you could go back. I, I don't necessarily for various reasons, but you could go back to um, the, the design of the Constitution to begin with, which was all about trying to create different constituencies for different institutions in the government precisely to avoid powerful forces from taking over the entire government, right? So if you, if you elect the House this way and you compose the Senate in this other way, which at the time, of course, had to do with state legislatures, basically, like right. sending senators, and you elect the president in this other way, right, and courts are appointed in this other way, then, like, no, you know, a, a powerful interest group is going to have to dominate several different selection techniques to dominate the entire government, right? So it kind of is a, is a break on powerful factions. So you could take that view and say, no, it would be great if the president were elected in an entirely different way than we elect senators or House members or appoint judges. Okay. Um, that would be one way of, of looking at it. Another way is to say, it, you know, basically who cares, right? That the, it, so long as the president is democratically accountable, does it matter that he or she is democratic, democratically accountable in a different way than the House or the Senate is democratically accountable? And I'm not sure... I see a strong argument for why. Well, what I think um, the the fact that the president that that twice in the two thousands we've had presidents who did not win the popular uh, national popular vote and nevertheless uh, were sworn in as president. Um, the the fact that that's noteworthy and jarring to some people, and it is. Uh, it, it, it tells you what you need to know here, which is that people perceive the president to be a nationally elected figure. And, and that is what, why we perceive this to be a disconnect, not, you know, just as fun as noticing occasionally your, your, uh, uh, the, the meter in your car is a palindrome or something, right? Right. Oh my gosh, I've driven 3,663 miles. I, you know, I always want to note that. And then by the time I look at it again, I've realized I've missed it. <laughs> but every time, but this, every time. The, 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 the president being the president without having won the national popular vote, people don't look at it that way, right? right. They look at it as, you know, WTF. <laughs> um, and and the, why do they feel that? Well, because again, it's, it seems like, a a real disconnect the president is a nationally elected figure and this really obvious metric of national election who won the national popular vote right isn't telling you who the president is that seems wrong or weird or problematic no, uh, a, and a so, common, that, yeah. so the, the tell there is it's a nationally elected figure well that makes it quite different from being a member of the house quite different from being a member of the senate um and I, I th- so I think sort of saying, oh, but doing national popular vote wouldn't, would take it out of step with blah, 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 precisely, right? It already is out of step in people's yeah. perceptions that people think of this as a national leader. I, uh, I think a common defense of the system, or it's not exactly a defense of the system, but, it, but a common thing to say is that, well, these are the rules. And people accept the rules. And even if people complain when it gets out of step like this, like it's not as though the people taking the, to the streets to 
uh, protest Trump, that this is their one and major issue, right? There are lots of other issues they have. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how he didn't win the popular vote. But of course, there are many attempts to delegitimate uh, an opponent in, um, uh, in many other social movements. So if it weren't this, it would be something else, they might say. Now, uh, we, we can debate all of that, but I, but I would say this. One reason that people tolerate this rule is because it had, up until recently, been very rarely uh, been very rarely in tension with the national popular vote. Right. If we routinely elect a, a president who loses the popular vote by millions, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that that was A L E X A in the other room. Oh, who thought? I see. I can't even say. I can't even say because I'll set off other people's. You see what I'm saying? You said what? If if I if I say A L E X A stop. Yes. It, it may, yeah. Okay. Maybe she'll stop now. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, if we if we routinely elect uh, someone president who doesn't win the popular vote, you know, then I, how long do people think that California will stand for that? Certainly, a few elections, but after a while, you know, California, New York, big states, and they made you know. I think you can only push them so far. So th- this, is, this is the more general point about malproportion, both yeah. in, in the Senate and in the House and for President of the United States. And it raises a leveling up and leveling down issue as well, right? So if, you're, if, 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 if you perceive, again, these things to be disconnections or, or, or things that aren't working well, um, you know, the, the answer, it seems to me, lies in the direction of having a House of Representatives with pr- that, that has members determined by... A, proportional representation system yeah. of voting not by saying oh well, we need to take this president thing and dial it back to 1802 i mean that's right. crazy right um <clears throat> that's a that would be leveling down rather than leveling up i i agree and, and i just wanted to you know take the opportunity to kind of share with you and point out this thing i've been thinking about like that we take for granted the stability of our system right and this goes back to the point before about like free education, uh, um, not pushing the millennials to the point of poverty, uh, right. that the stability of the system arises partly because you don't make repeat losers of particular sets of people, right? Right. And that people don't, aren't at the constant end of the suffering stick, right? That they get some wins, that they are included, you know, even more than winning, losing, because I don't think of it, you know, like they, they are included in a national coalition, Right. And if the people are routinely excluded, you know, that's stability is not guaranteed. Stability is not guaranteed. No, you and, might and even think, say you might even go as far as to say that instability is guaranteed. I, I think and, so. And you might you might take steps, therefore, to uh, at the level of constitutionalism, you might take steps to ensure that um, that at least on certain dimensions, it, it is impossible to uh, vigorously and effectively exclude whole groups of people on an ongoing basis from political power. Right. Um, that, you know... Uh, I mean, the, the initial design was to try to keep the slave and the non-slave states in a, in a state of equipoise, right? To, to balance them on the head of a pen. And that was a, a critical part of the design. Now, I think it was an 
you know, yeah, I think it was an evil bargain I'm not from sure the beginning. I agree with it. Is I, I would go. I think I think it's a little, um, a little more troubling than that. I think it was, uh, you know, in equipoise advantage to slave states, uh, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to having the presidency. Right. Um, and, and I think history bears that out. And the f- first met John Adams is sort of the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one more thing. You want to do one more thing? Sure. So there's this really interesting... So let's talk about Twitter for just a second. Uh, <laughs> From the sublime to the ridiculous. Not, not, the, not the constant issue of whether the president should be banned from, from Twitter. If that, you know, that's a separate... We, we could talk about that at some point. But um, uh, Carissa Hessick on... Do you know her? I don't. Uh, teaches at North Carolina. Okay. Um, wrote a really interesting essay on uh, she calls it towards a series of academic norms for hashtag law prof twitter oh yeah yeah which is all about like you know what for law profs i heard someone reference this uh i think yeah i mean i I read it it was a couple it was like a week ago or so that i read it and i read i read it somewhat quickly so you know it'd be fun to talk with her about it and and to continue this conversation but i thought i'd bring it up now just because I, i wanted to get kind of your thoughts on it's it's one of those pieces which is wrestling with how do we engage with the broader community as law professors mm-hmm. um, and still be citizens at the same time and still be on Twitter at the same time? And, and I think by definition, being on Twitter is kind of, you know, letting things hang out a little bit, right? It can be, sure. And like, you know, I'm a jackass on Twitter sometimes. You know, I try not to be. I try, I try not to let Twitter be that, the place where I go, I read all these tweets, I get angry about things and I'm, you know, just angry all the time. Um, although maybe it does become that, you know, I, I feel like on, when I'm looking at Twitter, I'm a slightly different person. Mm, interesting. Uh, I don't like it, but it is. Uh, so I try to mix up who I follow and everything. But uh, but her point is more, you know, when we opine on things and because politics is so close to law mm. and there's so much about politics, which has a legal valence to it. Yeah. It, do we have a special responsibility um, either not to say anything outside of our expertise or to be careful when doing so, or to give some warning when we are opining on things as a citizen without expertise. Um, I, I thought this is interesting, partly because of, I think the deeper question has to do with what it means to have expertise in law. Okay. Right? And, and because I see lots of people who, will, who are experts in a particular field and will say this is right and that is wrong, right? About either a statute or... Um, uh, a bit of constitutional interpretation. And yes, they are experts, and yes, they have cases that they're referring to, um, but there's no, they don't have necessarily dominion over what is right and what is wrong in law. You know what I mean? I do. Uh, and, and because these, these are complicated questions, but inevitably... You and I don't have dominion over it either. No, but, the, but, there, but, but oftentimes, but there are people who have a kind of a meta theory about law where that theory is that uh, is that legal questions have right and wrong answers in fields A, B, C, and D, and those right and wrong answers are determined by data, you know, X, Y, Z, and W, right? And so when they opine on Twitter that this is the answer to this thing, right? Um, it's based on that meta theory, and that meta theory may be agreed to by all practitioners and all experts in that particular field. And so they may be right in that sense that mm-hmm. everybody agrees. And, and so, you know, t- under a whole bunch of different approaches to law in general, right, you can say that when they say that this is right and that is wrong, they're actually correct about that. There are other fields where this is less so, where there's less agreement about the, you know, the meta theory of right and wrong in law. 
But another thing that occurs to me is that, um, the, and think about how the lay public takes up expert opinions. So if, if you're a law professor and you're tweeting about, um, oh, I don't know, national security law, you know, Steve and Bobby's show, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, there's a whole community of scholars who tweet about national security law, and someone takes a position, there, there, there was a huge kind of partisan following which will then take that up as a, uh, as, as, uh, as a, um, uh, a talisman, right? In other words, the, the engagement of the lay public with these so-called expert opinions is, is oftentimes no more than just another talisman that they can use to beat opponents with. Okay. You know, it's just a signifier of right and wrong. So in is that it, sense... It's part of their... Uh, it could become part of someone's um, sense of affiliation with a group. Yes, but but then and they could and they could do various things with that sense of affiliation and act out their affiliation in various. Sometimes it is being aggressive toward people in another group. Sometimes it's just you know enjoying or feeling good about the things that remind you of the group you're in. But, so I guess I'm trying to get at this. I'm not saying it great as you've already pointed out. I'm off my game today. That's the one thing you can you can say with. Some, I agreed with you with indicating that. Uh, but but suppose we're in a field where where some experts think. Uh, maybe it's the Fourth Amendment, right? So some people have the mosaic theory. Some people are, have kind of Oren Kerr's like equilibrium theory of mm-hmm. Fourth Amendment. Other people have some other theory. And so in, in a case like, um, see, I'm not even going to edit that out, Joe. The, bi- the, the, boom the big thing boom that just happened. That you're which, convinced will be there that I am skeptical about? Oh, I, oh, it'll be there. There's no doubt. So you're expressing uh, expert, expert views <laughs> I am, based I am, on your I am, experience am. with but, uh, and so, But these different commitments to the meaning of the Fourth Amendment can lead them to different conclusions about how a case like the, the carpenter, the cell phone location, the, you know, the cell phone data case should come out, right? Sure. Um, and when so, so when someone tweets, you know, this case should come out this way for the government, for example, because these other cases, because blah, 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 because blah, 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 because blah, blah, blah. You know, how do non-experts interact with that that showing of expertise? Okay. And one concern I have is that they just use it as an endpoint of an argument, right? That They just retweet. It just becomes another object to retweet. It becomes and it therefore, be- an argument ender. Okay. So, so some people could um, use it in a particular way Mm-hmm. Um, so an expert makes a statement about a thing. Yeah. Someone else can take that statement and use it in a way that maybe the expert wouldn't use it. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, what? Well, does it improve discourse? So, so if the question is, should this come out for the government or against the government? It's a binary question, right? And you have experts on, legal experts on each side as you can predict, because of the nature of interpretation and the nature of, you know, second-order commitments in law. What, what is the role of the expert? If we're thinking, so it seems almost prior to kind of Carissa's question about how, um, uh, how we should present ourselves on Twitter. Like, you know, I, who am not a Fourth Amendment expert, but who have, you know, I have studied the Constitution. I do have some constitutional theories about yeah. interpretation. Uh, but but I certainly haven't read all the cases or thought about them as deeply as say Oren has, right? right. Um, should I spout off on Twitter and just add it to the list of things I'm a jackass about on Twitter, or will I mislead <laughs> people? Into, you know, will I mislead people into thinking that you know this is an expert, therefore I can stop thinking about this question? 
Because the way, the way the expert, you know, the way someone like Oren engages with the question is not, oh, I found the answer and now I can stop engaging. It's I'm going to participate in a conversation. Yeah, right? that's a really interesting uh, insight right there that, that um, you know, when you said a person would say, oh, so I can stop thinking, right? Uh, I, I, for me, the important thing would be to not encourage anyone to take that attitude. So what do we do here? We talked to Oren once right. about his um, equilibrium theory, or you might call it a homeostatic theory of the Fourth Amendment. Right, which is uh, as, as, we, as, technology, thought... as technology changes, the line between security and privacy has to kind of change to keep that balance, right? Yeah, and, and it, it's, a, it's a great article, and we mm-hmm. learned a lot. I did. Yeah. And it was really good to talk to him about it because it helped me understand it better. And so it was not just, here's a, th- here's a conclusion. It was, here's a way to think about a thing. And here are some questions to ask. And here's some insights you might have if you ask those questions when you're trying to think better about this thing. So, you know, a lot, I, I think, um, some of what experts do is help people understand better who haven't spent as much time as the expert has thinking about a set of issues. Right. Like here are the kinds of questions that are really good to ask if you're trying to do well uh, with this set of concerns. Here's um, the sort of stuff to keep your eye on. Which is what we try to do on this show. Precisely. But I don't know that I ever do that on Twitter. Which is why, like, I don't tweet about property law or legal theory generally on Twitter. And, and I, and I, you know, Twitter, <laughs> even with the doubling to 280 characters, right? Which is abysmal, which I think is horrible. <laughs> I, I, but, but, I, I let it go for a while. So my point was simply that it was a way to, uh, someone yeah. could say more in a tweet now than they could before. But look, it's, it's just not, it's not... Um, there are different media of expression and and twitter you can even if you do a string of tweets right that you link together it's it's not a place where people are developing incredibly nuanced arguments uh, at great length um now even e- e- on the third hand right <laughs> so so it's good to have um it's it's good to help educate people in a topic a where part of what you're doing is helping them think better on their own about that topic right? with, by, with the benefit of your experience and do that in a way that's conversational and, and helpful and informative and facilitating other people's being thoughtful rather than other people's being thoughtless. Um, and then I said, on the other hand, you, you said, on the other hand, you know, Twitter, short, how, whatever, maybe that's my other hand. But on <laughs> the third hand, um, you know, even, even, even on a even in a tweet length thing if 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 what you're trying to do is give people or or provoke people to be more thoughtful yeah like here you know here's a question it's not just a conclusion maybe it is a conclusion but it's a conclusion that that raises a further question right or you know he, this is the conclusion you would reach if what you care the most about is x if you care the most about something else, maybe you wouldn't reach that conclusion. Well, that's actually an interesting way to sort of get people to think more a bit about what they're doing and why, right? Um, I don't know. I haven't read this other person's thing about you, how you to should, use I mean, Twitter. It's, it's fa- so, she's always interesting, and this is a fascinating piece, so maybe it's something we should explore more at a, at a later time. Here's, here's, where, but, here's yeah. what I don't like about some of what has happened in the last few years. 
and the existence of Twitter and academics on Twitter. Um, I, I'm, I am concerned about people. I, I, I like the, um, the, the informality of mm-hmm. certain channels of communication. And I, it would make me sad if we lost that, for, that informality. Uh, and one way we might lose that informality is when people are suffering real negative consequences in one domain for things happening in, in a different domain, yeah. right? And so, you know, the, for example, there are some state laws that say, you know, you can't be disciplined at work for something that you do at home. So right. if you smoke at home, uh, you're a smoker, and you smoke at home. Can they, you know, sanction you in some way at work for being a smoker? No, it might affect your insurance rates, but other than that, this is this is the one bit of constitutional law that I think everybody on Reddit knows. It may be the only one. Uh, no, I don't. I, but that that uh, that the the First Amendment applies to the to government action, right? So you can't be. Uh, it doesn't protect you from, say, your employer or something else. But as you point out, there are state laws which say that you can't be fired for um, expressive activity, uh, it, with some exceptions and everything. So there, there or, are state or, laws that do this. Or yeah. even non-expressive activity, just course, behavior. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Right? So, um, so what does a, a law like that indicate? A law like that indicates a, a, an, a, a, a recognition of the value that we're we're whole people and we have various aspects and every aspect doesn't get need to pour it doesn't need to be poured into every other aspect right so that this is an anti-branding view in the end i think that you're expressing right that 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 there ought that the culture ought to be one in which we can be whole people who have expertise in some areas are jackasses in other areas are right. just regular people who make mistakes in some areas, including ones which are, in which we have expertise. No, it's actually, interesting when you got so demystifying people, when you got people who are who are media figures. Um, uh, what what was the host name on ESPN? Which I don't watch at all. Jamel Hill. That who, don't know. So people, let's say you 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 are a um, you, you're a Jake Tapper on CNN, and yeah. you are and you tweet something about. Um, you know, restaurants in New York and or DC or whatever. And, and that, and people get upset because you're a bit of a restaurant because you're not a restaurant critic, but you're whatever. I, I, it's interesting when you're a media figure. So you're, so the very thing you're hired for is to be a media presence. Right. And then what you say on Twitter is part of the media presence you're creating. Like that is a different, that's sort of a, an interesting case because your job is your media. But I think there's a lot yes. of pushback on that because, you know, every, every one of those people... But for a lot people, of people, that's not... There isn't even... It isn't even in that territory, right? Right. It's... You're, you are um, a public school teacher and maybe you also have a Twitter account. Or you are... Um, you know, you're a business executive of the, or an accountant and you also are on Twitter. Like, I think people need to be able to have a life outside of work. That where the things they do in that life outside of work don't get dragged into work, yeah, and 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 you have to be accountable at work for all the things you do outside of work. I just that worries. And the me. the important point is that that professors of different kinds have um, we have a public mission as well. And Twitter unambiguous. I mean, Twitter ambiguously 
can be, can advance that mission, right? In, in the sense that, like, part of what we do is service and part of what we do with this show, right, is to is to um, get ideas out into the world, the ideas of, right. our, of our colleagues and the rest of the academy and sometimes our own ideas. And and we do that. But we also talk about lots of goofy stuff on the show. Like, this right. show, in a way, right, is... is 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 about like the fuzzy boundaries of expertise yeah right and, and insights can come from all over and so for you know if you and i in talking to each other or in talking to a guest um you know does that mean that if that guest in some other venue said a thing that you and i wouldn't agree with that that we should be held accountable in some fashion for what that person said on that other occasion because there's a well but they were a guest on your show once yes <laughs> you, you, so you, but there, i mean these are, there are going to be boundaries which are in the end cultural and political right like what is acceptable correct like if someone is is a really nice person in the office and it does a lot of great things for the for the company or for the university or what have you and in their private time just likes to do a bunch of nazi stuff like that's unacceptable, right? That that would be that. There's too great a risk um, of 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 who that person is, kind of affecting what they do, and that might not even be the only reason for firing that person or excluding them. Um, you know, there, there are certain there are boundaries which are culturally and politically policed, but we we don't think of them as boundaries because the way we frame everything is is in terms of freedom. But then there are some things which are kind of outside of that freedom. You know right. what I mean? I do. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I, because I, I think her point, right, is that, is that to, um, to go outside of our expertise, right, on things which are ambiguously legal, in some ways, like diminishes our own authority, diminishes us as scholars, right, and, um, or can that that's a danger. But right. I, I think we should engage more deeply with the piece in in the future. It's interesting because on, and I think that's a thing to be quite mindful of because yeah. it's a reminder that uh, how other people perceive us and and perceive the uh, the sort of the range of our expertise, right? They we might unwittingly be engaged in a kind of sloppiness that that is that is harmful to others. Yeah, uh, and that's a good thing to think about by misleading um, them into thinking something is true, which you know, which, which right when that wasn't our intention, right? Um, be, precisely because our being steeped in these matters, uh, where it was very clear to us, oh, I wasn't speaking from my expertise in that regard mm -hmm. i was just you know i'm no better position than you are and just have, but i have yeah, an opinion and, and i knew that didn't you know that but no, this is the way law, <laughs> i'm not a lawyer and therefore not a lot right that's law is weird in this way and this is this is why we need to talk about it at greater length you know it's something else that happened on twitter um you know how the president blocks people every now and then and there's an issue of whether the president can block people yeah yeah we that's another thing to talk about with twitter so i got blocked recently not by the president but by someone that I respect very much, mm. actually. Um, I don't expect people to follow me. on Yeah, you know, I don't get bent out of shape if people don't follow me back right. or don't follow me. It's like, like people, there's a limited amount of, there's a limited attention budget. Right. Right. And there's a limited tolerance that we have for being, you know, pissed off by other people's points of view, maybe. Like, and so right. I, I get like, no one's got to follow me. I don't, I'm not, you know, nothing. I'm not going to say anything. So what does getting shattering. blocked mean? Remind me of what. Get, getting blocked means that you can't see the other person's tweets. Oh, okay. So, so if President Trump blocks you, that means you cannot see what he tweets. Okay, even and, and he, he doesn't see he doesn't see what you know he he doesn't he can see you still, but he won't see your at replies. I think. 
Okay. Um, unless he goes out and takes a look at what you're doing. So what if someone retweeted a, a Trump tweet? Yeah. After Trump had blocked you, would you see it? I don't think so. Oh, wow. Interesting. Although I did see one from this. I don't know how that happened exactly. But okay, so but you got blocked. So, yeah. And, and it's strange because I didn't expect this person to follow me. You know, it's fine. Much but, less but, to block. But, I, you know, I try, <laughs> I try to follow a wide range of, of views on Twitter, but I'm never shy about sharing mine. But I'm also humble enough to know that, like, I'll say stuff, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. And, um, and, and so I'm happy for people to kind of tweet back and sure. whatever. I, I'm, not, I'm still not clear exactly what the best way to use Twitter is for, like, political and legal things. And I also think we are in, a, we are in an exceptional time. And so, like, all the normal rules for how I would like these things to go, I'm not sure apply in the same way mm. because of the unique stresses of the time. But that said, like, I, I try to follow a bunch of journalists, some scientists, some people on the left, some people on the right, just to, you know, to be exposed to a lot of things uh, constantly. And so this is, you know, this person who I respect very much, I follow partly to get a different point of view because this person tweets in a kind of political way, but also has expertise that I admire. And um, I think as soon as I followed, this person blocked me. Whoa. So now I can't see that person. I, you know, they didn't follow me. So I don't know what, it was weird. Like, what am I to take from that? Hmm. Feels bad. I don't know. But it, 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 in a way, like blocking on Twitter, forget, forget tweeting from expertise and everything else for just a second. Right. But blocking is a way of saying, I don't want you to be in my conversation. Yeah. I don't want, it's, it's not just, I don't want to hear what you have to say. You did, then fine, don't follow that person. It's, I don't want you to hear what I have to say. Mm. That I don't understand. I've never blocked anybody. So I don't really, I, I was going to ask you if you've blocked somebody or, or if you can understand why you would, like, also, I, like, I'm not a very popular on Twitter, so I don't have a bunch of, <laughs> I, I don't have, like, I don't have a bunch of, like, Nazis tweeting at me and stuff. Right. And, and if they did, I, I might block just to stop some of that, but, but I don't get that. Um, but, yeah, but I could for, see, I could see blocking for that, for, to, to prevent ongoing harassment yeah because twitter you know by god twitter's not doing it right so you got to do it yourself yeah. so so i can certainly see that if i got a bunch of misogynist stuff or a bunch of racist stuff like it, there are good reasons to block but right. just someone that you disagree with politically or that annoys you in a certain way i, I, I blocking is is weird right yeah, I, well, I, at least ma- I, i'm trying to figure out i mean out it's like a matter of degree i you know if you if the difference between harassment and annoyance is important and you and and significant and yet one might also say well you know but i don't really come to this thing to get annoyed mhm so um if but that's a reason not to follow somebody but 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 this is what i was asking about before about retweeting right yeah. so someone who doesn't follow you could still be exposed to your stuff if someone they do follow retweets you i guess I guess although they, they blocked me right after I followed them. Yeah, that, see, that's what I don't understand, is that seems like I don't get the, like, what would be the basis yeah. for doing that? Like, how and would they even know? I don't know if you, like, I, I'm not going to dwell on this too much. It feels kind of bad, and, but I don't know what this person's intentions were. So I, I, still, I still love this person. I think they're great, but, but you know, whatever. So I'm, then I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, in bed one night, you know, I've fallen asleep with a phone before. And I'm wondering, like, did, did, I, like, did I, like, retweet something weird? Or did I tweet at this person something weird? And I went back, I didn't find anything. Right. But I've done that before where I'm, I'm worried. Like, did I, you know, do something goofy because I fell asleep with a phone? So, which yeah, which just, shows, just shows that I, that, that, that I, I, too, like many of us, um, uh, maybe not all of us, um, have a sometimes unhealthy relationship with the phone. 
so here's a here's the thing which you can feel free to cut this out of the recording if if you want to but um uh, don't make me cut anything out i just want to i'm gonna hit stop and i'm gonna hit publish so but go ahead well it's just i've got a question how do you how does a person know this just shows you're you are much more of a twitter user than i am but ha- so how does a person even know they've been blocked oh because uh i followed this person and wasn't seeing anything I'm like, I wonder what they're saying. Cause I, you know, I used to kind of see every now and then retweeted and I'm like, what, what's going on? And I went there and I hit tweets, you know, I, I hit their profile, I hit tweets and it says, you can't see these cause you've been blocked. Oh, okay. so that's, that's how I found out. So it's not like you get an alert that no. says you've been blocked. <laughs> by another. No, no, it's not, it's not that aggressive. It's, it's passive, which is helpful because especially if you're dealing with abuse, right? You just passively, you know, you don't, the person can't see you anymore. Right. Unless they make another account. So, of course, you can see, yeah, I can see this person from another account. Yeah. Uh, but I don't maintain other accounts. So, I mean, yeah, uh, overall, I guess my, my feeling is that um, bl- blocking is, uh, I'm glad that blocking exists as a technique that users have at their disposal to make Twitter something that's more helpful for them. To, to see what they want to see and not see what they don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who get blocked, yeah, are going to have feelings. I guess, yeah. And, and, or people who get unfollowed or follow. Like these things yeah. will, you know, I, I try to be mindful of that. I don't think I really ever unfollow anybody. Um, at least I don't mean to. I always wonder, again, if I'm falling asleep and I accidentally... <laughs> <laughs> which is why, which is why I, I generally don't do that, but I always wonder if that's happened. Um, uh, but it, it's but it's connected to the to um, to this paper because, of course, if I only ever tweeted about my academic work or academic ideas, um, then being blocked by another academic in particular would seem a very strange act, mm. right? I mean, that, that would seem very very odd. But since I'm a jackass on Twitter, sometimes. <laughs> Like, and, you know, and, and I tweet, you know, tweet and retweet like science stuff and space stuff and, and right. political stuff. And sometimes I'll try not to, but I'll engage in the snark on Twitter. Like I can totally, it, it has a different valence than if, than if I were restricted to this kind of expertise based tweeting, but we're, we're running kind of long. Okay. It's getting dark in here, isn't it? It is getting dark in here. We have no lights I mean, we've on. We've got the fire. We've got the, the light of the, the fire. The fire throws some light, but. What do you think? Well, it's been good to talk to you. Welcome to 2018. It's going to be 2020 before you know it. You know, at some point, very twisted. Well, at some point, um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was involved in one of these 2020 reports for. I'm not going to talk about this. Uh, At at some point, I feel like we should hit stop or or pretend that we've hit stop, and then have a conversation like we normally have. Because because a lot of fun things happen in those conversations, and you would have it on re- you'd have recorded it. Well, I I think that uh, I think that when that when we are not recording, and and you get on a on a Joe rant, <laughs> typically directed at me. See, this is but not you, always. I think that would be that, that is just podcasting gold. You want and me usually to get, we, when we record, it's usually podcasting bronze. You want me to get blocked? <laughs> you want to block me? If there were a way to block a podcast, I, our, our blocks might, <laughs> our blocks might exceed our subscriptions. Uh, yeah, there you go. All right, gang, welcome to twenty eighteen. Uh, yeah, this is how we're going to start. <laughs> welcome to twenty eighteen.